I got to move quickly so you listen quickly. I think the kids are dismissed to Children's Church too. There's Ike standing back there. Ike, are you in charge of this? All right. All right, in 332 B.C., there was an egomaniac on the loose, and uh, his name was Alexander the Great. And he was called Alexander the Great because, the amount, because of the sheer amount of territory and the people he was able to subjugate in his lifetime. He only lived to about the same age that Jesus lived. But uh, he, was a, he was an egomaniac who, whose, whose uh, expressed purpose, his expressed purpose was to spread Greek culture throughout the entire world. And there's a reason I'm going to read this to you, okay? I'm going to try to read it in a, in a way that, that makes it interesting to you because I want to use it as a, as a point of comparison and a point of contrast. The siege, you know what a siege is? A siege is, is, is when you... When you when you come up against a, a, another, another uh, an enemy, an enemy, and you force them to to stay within within their own within their own walls, in order to uh, well, there's many things you can do during a siege. You you try to starve them. You try to starve them out. That's one that's one purpose of a siege. Other other reasons are to to provide time to negotiate that sort of thing. But if people are shut up, and the enemy keeps them from from moving. Okay, the siege of Tyre was orchestrated by Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. during his campaign against the Persians. The Macedonian army was unable to capture the city, which was a strategic coastal base on the Mediterranean Sea, through conventional means because it was on an island and has walls right up to the sea. Alexander responded to this problem by first blockading and besieging Tyre for seven months. And then by building a causeway that allowed him to breach the fortifications. As Alexander could not attack the city from the sea, which is different, of course, from today, but in his day, he couldn't attack the city from the sea, he built a kilometer-long causeway stretching out to the island on a natural land bridge that was mo no more than two meters deep. The causeway allowed his artillery to get in range of the walls and is still there to this day as it was made of stone. As the work came near the city walls, however, the water became much deeper and the combined attacks from the walls and the Tyrian navy made the construction nearly impossible. Therefore, Alexander constructed two towers, 50 meters or 160 feet high, and moved them to the end of the causeway. Like most of Alexander's siege towers, these were moving artillery platforms with catapults on the top to clear defenders off the walls and Belista below to hurl rocks at the wall and attacking ships. The towers were made of wood, but were covered in rawhide to protect them from fire arrows. Although these towers were possibly the largest of their kind ever made, the Tyrians quickly devised a counterattack. They used an old horse transport ship, filling it with dried branches, pitch, sulfur, and various other combustibles. 
Then they hung cauldrons of oil from the mass so that they would fall onto the deck once the mass burned through. They also weighed down the back of the ship so that the front rose above the water. Then they set the ship on fire and it ran into the causeway. The fire spread quickly, engulfing both towers and other seize equipment that had been brought up. The Tyrian ship swamped the pier, destroying any siege equipment that hadn't caught fire and driving off Macedonian crews who were trying to put out the fires. So you see what's happening here? Do you have an image in your mind of what's happening? Alexander the Great is trying to capture a strategic place. And the Tyrians are, are pushing him back. After this setback, Alexander was convinced that he would not be able to take Tyre without a navy. Fortunately for him, his previous victory at Isis and subsequent contests, conquests of the Phoenician city-states of Byblos, Arwad, and Sidon had meant that fleets of these cities, which had composed most of the Persian navy, came under his banner. This immediately gave him command of a fleet of 80 ships. This development coincided also with the, uh, with the arrival of 120 war galleries sent by the king of Cyprus who had heard of his victories and wished to join him. With, an, with the arrival of another 23 ships from the Greek city-states of Ionia, Alexander had 223 galleys under his command, giving him command of the sea. Now there's a reason I'm reading all this. There's a reason I'm trying to paint this picture in your mind with, with these words about Alexander's conquest. With this new fleet, with this new fleet, Alexander's forces sailed on Tyre and quickly blockaded both ports with superior numbers. Alexander had several of the slower galleys and a few barges refitted with battering rams. Finding that large underwater blocks of stone kept the rams from reaching the walls, Alexander had them removed by crane ships. The rams were then anchored near the walls, but the Tyrians sent out ships and divers to cut the anchor cables. Alexander responded by replacing the cables with chains. You know what the passage for today is? Joshua 6 and the walls of Jericho. This will all make sense soon. The Tyrians launched another counterattack, but according to Arian, were not so fortunate this time. They noticed that Alexander returned to the mainland at the same time every afternoon for a meal and rest along with much of his navy. They therefore attacked at this time but found Alexander had skipped his afternoon nap and was able quickly to counter the soiree. Alexander started testing the wall at various points with his rams until the rams made a small breach in the south side of the island he then coordinated attack across the breach with a bombardment from all sides by his navy. Alexander is said to have personally taken part in the attack on the city, fighting from the top of a siege tower. Once his troops found their way into the city, they easily overtook the garrison and quickly captured the city. They quickly captured the city. This just silly, ridiculous question. Was that difficult for Alexander? 
And yeah, he's one of the greatest conquerors known to man. That's why he's called Alexander the Great. By way of contrast, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Now before I read this, let's establish some context here. It's important to remember this. This is holy war. Alexander's campaign wasn't holy like this is holy war. Alexander might have, have, have looked to various gods for strength and wisdom and insight in, 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 in carrying out his war. But this is holy war. This is God's war. And it's not only against the people of Jericho. More significantly, really, it's against the gods of the people of Jericho. You see, the people of Jericho worshipped, small letter, G-O-D-S, gods. They worshipped these gods by providing what the gods demanded in exchange for the gods' help, in exchange for their presence, in exchange for prosperity, in exchange for what the gods could offer. And in the case of these gods, these gods were mean and nasty gods. They required even the sacrifice of children. They required a, 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 a variety of immoral acts. This was a totally corrupt, polluted culture. And this is justifiable, holy war. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now interestingly enough, this is a self-imposed siege. They, 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 have laid, they have virtually laid siege against themselves because they know that outside the walls is a God who is, who is responsible for dividing a Red Sea, also for drying up the, the waters of the, of, of the Jordan, who's responsible for destroying the most powerful man on earth at the time, the Pharaoh, and his armies. Their hearts are melting because of this God. And they want to keep Him away. It's not the people of Israel so much that are intimidating. It's the God of Israel who has them shaking in their boots. So they close everything down. They lock it down. None went out, 
and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. That's interesting. There are mighty rulers there. There are men of valor there. God says, I'm going to give you this city. So essentially what, what, what God is saying to Joshua is this problem that, 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 has, that, has, that has posed itself. There's a problem. Any good story has, has tension, right? Any good story has a problem. God has promised the people Jericho. The problem is Jericho shut up. God says, I'll give it to you. What's even more fascinating is how. Let's read some more. You shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Okay, so the first order that God gives to Joshua, this commander of his people's army, is I want you to take a walk. Do it for six days. The same walk. A march. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, let me, uh, these walls were four feet thick. Is that the way you prepare an army? I, is that the way you prepare an army? It sure wouldn't seem so, would it? But those are God's instructions. Now the implementation of those instructions. Verse 6. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. They're making a lot of noise. I'm not sure how intimidating it is. They're drawing attention to themselves. I'm not sure how it's showing their superiority militarily. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Moses had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following. This sounds more like worship than it does war. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. They're moving. They're proceeding. But in terms of the goal, it sure doesn't seem like progress, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem a little bit like they're walking in circles? 
You know, our men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Not shoot an arrow, <laughs> but shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And of course the ark of the covenant was the box, the golden box that held the precious things that symbolized the very presence of God. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord, the presence of God, so that everybody could see the presence of God as it went around the city. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumps of the ram's horns went on before the ark of the Lord. And they walked on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear God was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. And they did it for six days. It almost seems monotonous. On the seventh day, the fateful day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And can you imagine, one soldier says to another, how long before we get the order? How long before we attack? This is starting to get boring. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to, to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest, what you have devote, lest when you have devoted them, you take of any of the vote, devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. A little different than Alexander the Great's exploits. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. 
But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all, belonged to, all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel. She has lived in Israel to this day. In fact, she's a, an ancestor of Jesus because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed be the Lord, cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Let's pray, and then I have some thoughts for you. Heavenly Father, our, our prayer is that you would speak to us from, from your word. We need to hear from you. So help us to help us to see. Help us to understand. And I pray that it might change our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here's the first thought I have from this passage. Remember, Jericho was locked down. It was a self-imposed lockdown. First thought, we can't keep God out of our business. My advice would be, to myself as well as to you, don't even try. Somehow, somehow I think so, uh, there, are, there are times at which we do think, though, that we can keep God at bay. Through these figurative walls that we build up, or whatever. Adam thought he could hide from God. Remember? He hid among the trees of the garden. God came to him and said, you knucklehead, what are you trying to do? I created those trees. I... I I created this whole thing. I know where you are. Jericho, they, they, the people of Jericho, the king of Jericho, the strategists tried to build a wall thinking they could keep God out. Forget it, guys. You can't keep God out. Believer or unbeliever, you can't keep God out of your business. Eventually, God's going to interfere, intervene in your business. There used to be a phrase, I don't know if they still use it to kids, he's going to get in your grill. You can't keep God away. Second point. How matters, H-O-W, how matters. God doesn't tell Joshua to match Jericho's strength with Israel's strength. Unless, of course, you think of Israel's strength as being God himself. But from a military standpoint, from a strength-on-strength strength standpoint, from, from a human point of view, 
God doesn't tell Joshua to match Jericho's strength with the armies of Israel and their strength. How matters. How the mission is accomplished matters. How the victory is achieved matters. How the work is done matters. We know we've seen God's work when it's crystal clear that He is the hero. If God isn't the hero of the work, it's not God's work. How we fight matters. How the walls fall matters. Did you notice the unusual plan of attack? The unconventional warfare? The absolute stark contrast between Alexander the Great and the Lord our God? This feels more like worship than warfare. There's priests, there's the ark, there's the whole seven-day thing in the symbolism. It all seemed like more of a religious ritual than it did generals sitting down at a table and plotting a strategy. These aren't aggressive, bloodthirsty imperialists. That's not Israel. God is the warrior. They're not like Alexander the Great. This is not like the Nazis. This is not like Putin and the Ukraine. The Ukraine. This is not that. This is not about conquering territories for, for geopolitical gain. Next point. How we win matters. How we handle the victory. This is about God. He wants to shape how we process reality and how we see the world. In order to do that, we have to understand His purpose. And His purpose is in this story. It's below the surface, but it pops up so that we see it. His purpose is this. He is holy, and He wants us to be holy. He is holy, and He wants us to be holy. And the way that He does that, the way that God, God teaches us holiness is by making clear distinctions between what is holy and what is profane. Or what is, what is saved and what is destroyed. Did you notice in the story that God determines what's set aside for destruction? That's God's call. What's set aside for destruction is His call. This is, this whole, this whole thing, this whole conquest of the land is God's judgment on sin. 
Israel, in this case, is an agent of capital punishment. And the capital punishment is the result of capital crimes against humanity and against God. And that's why the Canaanites are destroyed. In Genesis, God told Abraham, in 400 years, I will go and destroy this people. 400 years, that's merciful. That's a merciful waiting period. But the people got worse and worse and worse and deteriorated. Morally, ethically. And the time came. God's people are an agent of capital punishment. Now we don't do that today because we're not a nation. We're just a little colony of God's people planted here in Wasco. We don't go out and kill the sodomites! Raise the village! We don't do that. We're not a national entity. At one point in time, God's people were a nation. And he called upon this nation to judge sin. See, God won't endlessly tolerate sin or evil. There's a point of reckoning. You want an application of this to your life? Today, even though you're not part of a nation, you're still part of the people of God. Sin needs to die. Sin needs to die in us. If sin doesn't die in us, we'll die. So how does, how does somebody like Paul handle this? What is the correlation between the death of the Canaanites in, in, this, in this capital way and in this capital punishment and, and, and what's happening among us? Well, I think, there's a, I think a line can be drawn between the two. God says this. God says to his people who can quickly become his enemies by embracing sin and embracing darkness and refusing to walk in the light. God says this. Put sin to death. Put sin to death. Can I ask you a personal question that you're definitely not required to answer in a public service? How do you deal with sin? How should you deal with it? Kill it! Kill it. Put to death the deeds of the body. There's one sense in which it's already been destroyed and rendered ineffective and non-operational in your life. That's because of your status in Christ. But because we live in an already not yet situation, still, sin still tends to show up and still wants to reign in our lives. What should you do to it? 
Kill it. Put it to death. Don't play with it. Don't pet it. Kill it. We need to see sin the way God sees sin. When sin lingers, it pollutes and it destroys. And it becomes something worthy of death. And that's what's happening in this chapter. These sinners are held accountable for their persistent rebellion against the one true God who made them. If you make this about human beings and don't make this about God first, you'll fall into the trap of, 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 that, that many people fall into when they come to passages like this in the Bible where they just can't understand such a mean-spirited God. A mean-spirited God look at the cross what happened at the cross sin was judged at the cross and the only innocent man ever to walk the face of this earth was brutalized because of our sin. What does God think of sin? Well, His own Son was beat up and crucified for sin. Isn't it amazing? Listen to me. Isn't it amazing how we call that love? Anybody in the room who wouldn't describe that as an act of love? That's because you can't have love without wrath. You can't have love without discipline. And I could probably show you 10,000 examples of, of how indulgence ruins people, especially kids. You've got to have discipline. Without discipline, there's, 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 there's destruction. God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. And God always, God always, Always, listen, God always does the right thing. Always. You don't have to defend God here. You don't have to defend God here. God always does the right thing. He never does the wrong thing. He never slips up. He never, he, never, 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 no accidents. God determines what's destroyed. He sets it apart. 
This he sets apart for destruction. That's his prerogative. He's God. But he also sets apart what's saved. Do you notice what the narrator did there? He didn't have to use the word prostitute, did he? We would have known who Rahab was by just the mention of her name. We'd have known. We would have known. But no, he mentions her previous occupation. He mentions what she saved out of. And he also mentions, albeit not overtly, why? What is saved is devoted to God. Whether it's precious metal or a prostitute and her family. And why was Rahab saved? Faith. Not because her personal life was particularly attractive to God. No, she had some Canaanite tendencies. Just like we have some Canaanite tendencies. But she believed God. She believed that this, that this person, that this, not, he's not, not a person, he believed that this, that this being who was creating this, this, this fear and this intimidation among her own people was real. She believed that it was, that it was entirely possible for her to have a personal relationship with this God. She believed that she could put her trust in Him. And she did. And she was saved. Set apart for salvation. Now this whole episode, this whole thing has, has the purpose of, of, of shaping, shaping, forming what we think of God. That's the point of these stories. These, these stories, they all have a hero. But, but, but in this case, even though the fame of Joshua spread and the report of him spread, it was God who was the hero. God is the protagonist. Satan is always behind the scenes as the antagonist. But God is the protagonist. God is the hero. And in these stories... There, there's a, there's, there's, there's a, there's a. You, you come away with the, the, with, with feeling the need to worship. 
this, this great God who, who, who doesn't need a nuclear arsenal to make a wall fall flat, a thick, five-foot-thick wall. Who doesn't need, who, who can speak the world into existence by his very words? Worship. But there's something else going on here, too. Listen to this. It's an attempt to use a clever phrase, but I ho- hopefully it'll help. Flattening fortifications fortifies faith. Flattening fortification fortifies faith. And another thing that's going on here is God's God's showing us His work to strengthen our faith. (laughs) Have you noticed that that God is not about the business of, of building this 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 machine this military and political machine just just moves on territories and 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 just and just tears people apart God, God is not about expansionism or imperialism or anything like that he just wants to get his people on his piece of property because of his promise so that they can be a people who embody the light, who embody what it means to belong to God and to trust Him and to serve Him. At the very beginning of this chapter, this is the last thing I'll say about, the, about this, okay? Well, probably not, but... Beginning of this chapter, it talked about how no one could go in and no one can come out, right? Is that how it ended? No, and the language is pretty explicit if you look at it. God got in. And he got out of that place who he wanted to get out. Getting them in, his people in, to get them out, or the spies in, to get them out in order to bring them in and establish them there. That's what God can do. That's what God does. And what He's doing among us is He's gathering us together from a variety of different Places, some here in Wasco. We've even had some EFE, EFCA transplants that are visiting. Won't point them out because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But God is gathering together a people to be planted in this place and to provide a witness to this community that He is God, that He is powerful. And that he channels that power into rescue. But in some cases, destruction. The thing I've learned about reading the Bible, though, 
is that God prefers rescue and deliverance. And He wants us to have a part in that. Now, He's done the work, just like He flattened the walls. He's done the work. We just walk, we just walk in the benefits of what He's done. And that's why we celebrate communion, because we're walking in the benefits of the work that God has done. If the elders would come forward to help, that would be great.